Welcome back to another episode of the Bear Market Brief Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Aaron. So a lot of what we do here on the podcast is political risk. We're exploring the intersection of politics and economics, predominantly in Russia, but in some neighbors too. But we haven't really taken a step back to explore how one does political risk. What's the methodological approach? Well, joining me today is Nick Trickett. Nick and I go way back, but most importantly, he took over the bear market brief as editor-in-chief after my tenure was up. We had a really great conversation where we talked about some of the methodology and then apply it to some ongoing situations, Nagorno-Karabakh, and how Russia's doing during and after COVID. We hope you enjoy. Nick, good to have you on the podcast. Yeah, man. Good to see you again. It's been a while. <laughs> so... Uh, to kick things off, before we even get to the issues, just quickly tell us who you are. That's a very good question. Um, so, I, I mean, I used to work with you, actually, on Bear Market Brief. Um, so I, I kind of had, had the energy beat for a while. I ran the Erasure Roundup when it first started, eventually took over after you left it, um, and kind of had like a freelancing political risk background after my, my tours of duty as an intern in D.C., um, then went back to school at the London School of Economics and um, did a little bit of part-time work for AKE with... Um, with Max Hess actually doing kind of like short risk reports for trade insurance kind of clients, for example, um, as well as, you know, just the writing stuff I've been doing in general. And after that, um, after I finished the program, I was a consultant until uh, May because of the downturn um, at Wood McKenzie, which is a, kind of one of the leading um, energy consult- like research consultancies. And they, they've like historically obviously focused on oil and gas, but now moving more towards renewables and other commodities. So I'm really excited for this episode, A, because Nick, you know, took over the brief after I did way back when, um, to talk through not just some of the more subject matter focused news updates, but also more political risk as a discipline. Um, and that's uh, interesting today because uh, it's October 2nd while, while we're recording this and overnight, uh, Trump was tested positive for COVID-19. So without you know, necessarily laying out the narrative and, and the details, I want to, Nick, talk with you about how do we go about making sense of the risk factors at play um, and making sense of you know, how this might impact the trajectory of the election, of policy. And what we're going to do next is then uh, tie it to an issue much closer to Russia and kind of see how that framework works overall. So how do we go about breaking this down? Uh, so that's a very good question. And I think one of the hard parts about doing political risk working in it is that a lot of it really is kind of like soft in the sense that everybody has their own idiosyncratic approach to it. And there isn't really a rule book. Obviously, companies have their own approaches. But I think the way that I tend to think about it is to basically break it down into different baskets where like you have uh, the kind of macroeconomic side of it. So like the kind of initial highest level to be Marxist, you know, superstructure of the events impacts. Um, you have the kind of institutional impacts, um, so specific agencies or companies, or in, the, in this case, the political campaign. Then you have kind of stakeholders. So, for example, people that might not necessarily be in that institution, but care about the outcomes of that institution, um, or else care about the macroeconomic impacts. And then, kind of finally, the hardest part, and I think the softest part of it, the part that's most uncertain, tends to be trying to project forward some sense of what affect the actual event you're talking about has or like decision has. So that that really doesn't actually have a, a proper definition per se, because obviously it, it depends entirely on the event we're talking about. Um, but that that's usually kind of thinking about 
uh, you know, like trends. So if it's a market issue, like market trends, if it's a political campaign, you know, polling, um, the types of problems posed in this case to a campaign, for example, by somebody not being on the trail. Um, how, how does that opponent actually take advantage of somebody being sick? Because obviously you don't want to be seen to be punching like, like a, a, a defenseless person um, on air. I mean, this, this election is not obviously a good example for that. But the point's more that I think that last factor is, is kind of where the alchemy happens and tends to be mostly up to the individual analyst and their own background and kind of preferences for how they analyze things. The part where you lick your finger, put it in the air and come up with a percentage chance of something happening, essentially. Yeah, and and I think also it's important to note, like combining the different levels of analysis into how you're you're rendering that 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 projected outcome. So let's quickly let's take a couple minutes here, kind of talk through on those levels what Trump testing positive and how this goes. Again, this is not a formal, well thought out. I'm posing this to Nick on the fly here, so this is more about the the approach than the actual analysis here. So we have the economic level. I know uh, stocks are down a little bit. Does this have a market impact? And how do we how do we think about whether this will impact the market? Uh, so normally to assess whether it impact the market, the, the real question you're asking is, does the market prefer Trump or Biden to win? Um, that's the that's the basic fundamental underlying question posed there. And, I, and we actually don't really know. It's kind of hard to tell because um, obviously Trump's Tax cuts have been really, really good for stock returns, you know, for for you know equities and so on. Um, at the same time, though, I think that you have seen more recently that the, the Wall Street's kind of turned against Trump, realizing that actually getting the virus under control is how people start buying stuff again and like having jobs again, and that obviously is going to lead to better profits. So I think like in this specific instance, it's just as likely to have a kind of net neutral impact as it would a, a negative impact that you normally see. Obviously, uncertainty always is always negative when it comes to financial markets, um, but I don't think it's going to have like a huge negative impact. Yeah, I would, I would, I think I would agree with that. Um, as far as uh, the stakeholders involved, now we can, we can take this into foreign policy. At which point there are a lot more stakeholders. So maybe we should keep it domestic because our next exercise will be very foreign policy focused. Um, but what other stakeholders kind of are in this universe of people affected as far as understanding the trajectory here? Yeah. So I mean. A couple of different things to, to look at there. One is the donor base of the parties in question. So, like, obviously, for someone like Trump, um, he's really been heavily reliant on dark money, or you know, people like Sheldon Anderson um, in Las Vegas, kind of funneling lots of cash into ads that aren't necessarily uh, directly affiliated with his campaign, but clearly are political ads. Um, they're likely to panic, obviously, because they want this guy to win. So, um, I would actually expect to see like a surge of spending from big Republican donors trying to kind of cover ground in key states um, and to basically make up for him not being publicly uh, campaigning as much, right? Because obviously he's going to be in recovery and so on. Um, so that's one one example, right? I mean, in terms of other stakeholders, I mean, you have the agencies responding. So like Pompeo, it's ostensibly foreign policy, but it still works, I think, for the example. Pompeo like is considering canceling going to Asia because he's worried about succession and, and just what's going on in D.C. And, and keeping an eye on it. He's also worried about his own campaign prospects for the future, but that's a different question. You know, or like Pence um, has to plan and, and might internally have to basically start having conversations about what happens in the worst case. Um, you know, you have the you, you have Mitch McConnell and the Republican majority in the Senate trying to figure out um, what him getting sick does for negotiations over stimulus. Ostensibly, I would I would assume they're trying to delay stimulus so that it happens just before the elections so that people like them and and and, and you know credit them for helping out, but like you know maybe not. 
Um, whereas, you know, Democratic leaders obviously now, knowing Trump's sick, are in a really tough bind because they're, they're not going to have as much leverage over McConnell. So it, it, it's, it's, I, think, I think it's the way to kind of boil down the stakeholder side of it is to really just think of really who wins, who benefits, to, to use the kind of basest, most crass formula, um, and who, who has a stake in him being, being president. Um, Makes sense. And then I guess one other level that is important, especially important in Eurasia, um, you know, we're both two very political people trying to not sound at all political, um, but kind of the, the optics of this, where Trump, I think it's safe to say in a nonpartisan sounding way, has played down the threat of COVID. Does the whiplash of him now going and catching it in the most 2020 events possible, uh, does that does that impact him negatively? It seems like a lot of the stakeholders, the institutional factors here are, are almost completely baked in and, and baked to completion where there's really not a lot that could actually make a big change. Is that? that I think that's, yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. And I think, I think that um, it's also important to remember that, you know, take, take figures like Mitch McConnell or Steve Mnuchin um, at, you know, the treasury, they represent themselves. They don't represent Trump, you know? So like they obviously collaborate with him and work with him on a lot of issues, but the reality at the end of the day is they also have their own agendas. And so like, I also think that their own agendas are somewhat independent of whether or not he's actually even the nominee. Um, so I mean, yeah, I think, I think most of the institutional factors baked in, um, where it gets harder to predict is when, you know, decisions have to be made requiring executive order or like negotiation with the white house in some, some capacity. Cause obviously like Trump could also like veto a bill he doesn't like, you know, things like that. Um, I don't think that the Senate's being particularly active right now, so I'm not that worried about that outcome. But I, I do think that it's important to at least remember that, like, even if institutional factors are somewhat stable, there's still always an element of, of disorder and kind of chance when it comes to individuals operating within institutions, especially ones like Trump, who don't really care about norms as much and have a huge amount of potential sway over outcomes. Yeah, I think one of the things in, in my approach that I always make make a point of, of following is kind of borrowing from like Bayesian statistics, uh, like the priors, like what has the trajectory been before? It's not just events happening randomly. Oh, like there's a 60% chance this totally, totally uh, new angle happened. If that's not related to what has been happening before, uh, you know, I think these, these one-off events kind of, they don't have a context. It's important to understand what the actors were doing before, which is, if you ask me, what a perfect segue to talk about something a little closer to Russia with these events in the Gunor Karabakh, where there was a very low-level conflict, well, a war in the 90s between Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, that was frozen and in the last couple of years has begun to unfortunately saw and over the summer started to slowly bubble and escalate to the point where it's now no longer, you know, taking, you know, pot shots and launching mortars at each other. I would say it's safe to say we're in like full scale interstate war or something near to it. I know uh, yesterday there were rumors that an, uh, a drone from Azerbaijan was around Yerevan, which is not near Nagorno-Karabakh. So um, using this as an exercise, very sensitive topic, so not taking a side here by any stretch of the imagination, but kind of doing the same exercise as we did with Trump and COVID here. Um, there's a lot of global powers at play here. 
Uh, so how do we break down, A, what's happening, who are the stakeholders, and how it might evolve? Right. So, so, so to take the first level, which is the, the macroeconomic level, is there going to be a kind of market moving impact or are, are, are people who just are trying to make money worried about this event? Um, there's really no evidence that um, that like what's happened is really impacting like the oil market specifically. Obviously, Azerbaijan's a big oil exporter, so uh, you know one of the first things you would just do is just check. You know, is the market reacting to the fact that a conflict is erupting relatively near pipelines for oil and gas? Um, the answer is no. So we can we can scratch that off. Uh, we don't have any empirical evidence for that claim. In terms of the stakeholders, um, you really have to kind of look at how both countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan in this case, have shaped their security paradigms and strategies. So like in the case of Armenia, obviously, because of the outcome of the conflict and because um, that territory is still recognized as, as Azerbaijani territory internationally, um, like in legal terms at least, you know, Armenia has always been isolated, right? Like Turkey effectively isolated its border. Um, it, its relationship with Georgia is not such that it can rely on Georgia as an outlet to like to grow economically. And clearly Azerbaijan is not going to want to trade with Armenia. And just if you try to cross the borders between the two countries to this day, having visited one or the other, you know, like they'll, they'll see the stamp and ask questions. So like, that's obviously not an economic option. Iran is is a potential partner with Armenia, but then you run into the problem that the Iranian territory that actually abuts Armenia is heavily Azeri ethnically, and also the, the economies aren't very complementary. So like, it's really, Russia's actually really Armenia's lifeline and by far the most important security partner in part because they have a formal defense agreement. Now in Azerbaijan's case, it gets a little bit more complicated because Azerbaijan benefited from its oil wealth in such a way that it had more flexibility and also, frankly, has a somewhat tumultuous relationship both with Russia and Iran for different reasons. And so, um, for example, like Azerbaijan's a big partner for NATO transit to Afghanistan for supplies, so that they've leveraged that very heavily. Um, they they buy a lot of military equipment from Israel because they historically have, have signed supply deals for oil with Israel. We can't know that because uh, Israel basically classifies its, um, its, its oil imports. So, you, so we, we only find out like a quarter century later, but it's relatively well known, that's a thing. Um, you know, like, and, and also Turkey clearly has uh, infinity with Azerbaijan because of both being Turkic peoples and Turkic languages that are relatively similar, uh, or I mean, basically they mean very close to each other and so on. So like, start there, right? So Armenia basically has Russia at its corner and then if you look at more recent communiques, um, you know, France and the U.S. agreeing to, to jointly communicate that they want things to de-escalate. Um, in the case of Azerbaijan, the big change is that Turkey has almost never taken an explicit side in the conflict. It's always kind of leveraged it for political influence, but not really pick sides. And this time, as part of a broader change in Turkish foreign policy behavior in the last couple of years, it, it decided to aggressively tilt towards Azerbaijan. And so... So essentially, you have a conflict that's not just, I mean, I think it's still being driven by Armenia and Azerbaijan. So I think people are exaggerating a little bit too much the great power element of it, um, because that's a sexy headline. But you have a situation where Russia and Turkey are, are ostensibly uh, aligned against each other in the same way that they are arguably in Syria, um, and in, in a different a different manner in the Eastern Mediterranean, because Turkey obviously has been a bit crazy there lately. So. So yeah, so you have this kind of inter interlocking web of of relationships of people with different different competing interests that are all built out of the security relationships that both countries have. So I, I would start there, I guess, um, if you want to pick it up. Yeah. yeah. So we have this you know, this kind of again, it's not necessarily. I think their local factors really really explain it most of all. Everyone's like, oh, like it's the United States, it's Russia, it's Turkey. They're just you know pulling the strings. I think. 
the fact there's a simmering conflict. And, you know, as that starts to bubble, local leaders lose credibility if they can't be strong. I think that's the most, you know, the most parsimonious possible explanation that it's, you know, a strong stance needed to be taken politically. And that led to the unfortunate situation we're in. Um, so now kind of stepping back to how this may impact these uh, bigger powers in the neighborhood, um, it doesn't seem like either Russia or Turkey has too much of an interest in things really bubbling over, not least because Russia literally has for forces stations in Armenia um, and has a mutual defense pact with Armenia that interestingly hasn't been invoked yet uh, as last I read. So I guess let's talk about so whose benefit and what, what do the parties want here? Let's kind of go by country by country. What does Armenia want? What does Azerbaijan want? What does Russia want? What does Turkey want? Or what might they want? Well, so Armenia, like it's, I mean, it's shifting a little bit because Pashinyan, the, you know, um, he, he basically signaled that they would consider, uh, if I recall correctly from the last couple of days, um, effectively acknowledging like, like, independence of Nagorno-Karabakh, like officially, which would obviously be a legal change of status and significant development. Um, in, in practical terms, Armenia wants Nagorno-Karabakh to, in, over time, become part of Armenia, if it could, though obviously I think I think it's a bit more complicated when you look at stuff on the ground. Um, and, and and it's also just a matter of, like, national pride, right? Like, there's a there's a very, very, very clear existential um, threat posed by losing it. Um, now, at least at this point in time, um, now, I think for Azerbaijan, it's a little bit more murky. I mean, I, it, there's the same problem in terms of like they, they want they want their land back, right? So like that, that's an obvious um, driver. I think in the case of Azerbaijan, if, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier about what's what was happening before the event to contextualize it, um, I would argue that ever since oil prices crashed in 2014, it's been a bit of a time bomb because it's a very salient issue for the regime, and obviously, obviously, like as you said, ha having a strong stance really matters domestically. And the reality is that, like, if if the country is no longer growing economically because oil prices aren't high enough to sustain growth, then eventually the regimes have to find other means of manufacturing legitimacy. So in this case, you know, it's it would make sense to try to pursue more aggressively, um, like a military victory of some kind for the public, at a time when, in theory, the rest of the world is not really paying attention, and, and like Russia is also a bit distracted with Belarus. Um, I mean, Russia just wants the status quo. Part of the reason why Armenia hasn't invoked the defense pact is because technically Nagorno-Karabakh is not Armenia. So, like, obviously that complicates the their ability to do so. Um, but, I mean, it, it, in general, Russia just wants peace and stability of some kind, right? It doesn't really have a favorite. or it, 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 I mean, it, it leans towards Armenia because of their relationship um, economically and so on in, in, in the defense terms. But I think in practical terms, that relationship is also a function of just wanting to maintain stability and the status quo in the region. And I think, I think in Turkey's case, as far as I can tell, it's a bit more like them playing chicken again, like they did in Syria, because, you know, Turkey's a NATO member. So obviously they're willing to bluff against Russia because if Russia attacks Turkey, they've attacked the NATO members. So then, then you obviously have the risk of an Article 5 invocation and the United States gets involved, and they, as do other European powers. So I think Turkey's aim in this specific case is not actually about the conflict itself. It's more that it, it's a useful bargaining chip um, for like a widening array of um, political standoffs in the region at a time when its economy is really weak. And I mean, I, I can't, I don't, I don't know enough of Turkey to meaningfully speak to the rally around the flag effect, but I think it's pretty obvious that when things are unstable domestically, um, leaders that have rel relatively firm grip over the governments have an incentive to try to do something to generate a win. Um, I don't think it's always a war, obviously. I think, I think Crimea, for example, 
as the example given now because of what Putin did um, with his, his approval ratings, a bit of a it's a bit it's a bit of like an outlier. I don't think it actually reflects properly what a lot of a lot of these cases would look like. Um, but it clearly gets Ankara negotiating leverage with Moscow at a time when it really doesn't have that much to negotiate with if it suddenly has a stake in the conflict. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in that regard, uh, what Turkey is doing, uh, similar, dare I say, almost a little uh, reminiscent of kind of Putin's kind of signature signature move, just kind of creating a status quo on the ground, kind of getting involved, not necessarily in a major way. Um, I think there's certainly been talk of, you know, Turkey, Armenia accused Turkey of shooting down an airplane, which we haven't really seen evidence of that yet. Um, but, you know, making itself an indispensable part of the equation and then getting leverage from it. Same same as uh, Russia did in Syria. Um, I think I think there's an argument to be made. So now that we're firmly in the Eurasian neighborhood, um, want to talk about we've talked on this podcast a lot about you know, how is Russia doing? How is how's it managing with covid? Um, as last I saw, I know Russia, much like the rest of Europe, I just called Russia Europe. Uh oh. Um, no, much like much like a lot of European countries, got the situation fairly under control. Has a vaccine. I'm making air quotes now. So speaking of COVID, uh, starting to tick back up. Where is Russia uh, at now economically? How stable are we talking? Very quickly, and then more importantly. What's Russia's trajectory economically as COVID, inshallah, lifts and is no longer a factor? Yeah, so I think so, so the first uh, the first point is usually about stability, because obviously um, I mean, there's a large body of literature and evidence that the kind of Russian economic model of the last two decades that's evolved it privileges stability over growth. Um, the situation is stable. It's just really bad. So, like, I mean, I, the, the way that I'd frame it is that, you know, like, like there's not like a massive worsening of, um, of economic conditions, largely because of external demand for commodities, um, like kind of lifted prices. Largely Chinese stimulus did that. There's some um, U.S. stimulus helped with that, too. Um, not oil, but like, you know, metals and you know, minerals, things like that. Gold going up also helped. Um, so, I mean, I mean, in general, they managed to weather the worst of it, ironically, because the, the economy is less dependent on services. And largely, you know, driven in terms of its, um, in terms of like income growth and so on for the country by, uh, you know, exports of commodities. Now, I think in in practical terms, it's terrible. I mean, unemployment's much higher than official stats are uh, are showing. I think everybody basically accepts that reality. Um, that's also probably true in a lot of Western countries, actually, because it's difficult to know with people have been furloughed if they will have jobs once those, you know, once those kind of support schemes end. Um, I think that. The bigger problem that is emerging now is really about um, something as simple as that, even the current account for the country, like the, the structure of trade. So, like you know, a lot of the like what what managed um, to kind of get Russia through last time was the fact that you know the, the G20's coordination in response to the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, essentially saved the oil price. Um, now, obviously, it was a different a different shock because there was no virus, so it was really a financial crisis firmly, even though it impacted the real economy. But, but basically, the stimulus plans that were put for bailing out banks and so on managed to get oil back up to you know hundred dollars a barrel. And so, even though it didn't produce growth for Russia, it it meant that the budget was was okay. Um, and then th now the problem, obviously, 2014, 2015, you, you have the oil price shocks, and then you go you go into a long period of uh, of fiscal consolidation, which is a fancy way of saying that they're just trying to cut spending so that people get less from the government. And 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 so the What's problem the optimization they use. Yeah, I think now yeah, now it sounds very like Brezhnevian like 
bizarre, like 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 computers are going to perfect it or something. But um, the basic problem now is that you've had effectively six years of slow moving austerity imposed on the country, and then the shock hits, and the real economic crisis response, even though it's been fairly good over things like you know creating a moratorium for bankruptcies. Um, offering some income support, even though it's really not that significant when you look at the scale of it. Um, you know, they've managed to avoid the worst damage. And, you know, but, but the problem now is that they're still stuck in the mindset of not wanting to spend. And they have like nearly $600 billion worth of currency reserves now to spend. And they're just not, I mean, they have to save some of that because it covers external debts, you know, debts owed in foreign currencies. But like, um, you know, even just this last week, the directive sent out to tell, essentially instructing state-owned companies, namely Rosneft, Gazprom and Orosa to like use their foreign currency earnings to, to prop up the banking sector because the banking sector is suffering like a liquidity crisis for foreign currency. Um, so, you know, so like it's what it's an interesting time because, you know, a lot of, a lot of the Russian model really does, does rely on the idea that oil demand is going to keep going in terms of growth. And that's just no longer clearly the case. I mean, I think I, I'm definitely much more bearish about the future of oil demand than a lot of people in the industry at this point. But I also... I also think about it in terms of political economy as opposed to how like an economist might model it. Um, but the basic problem is that I just don't see a viable path for oil to really rise above $55 a barrel for a long period of time ever again. Um, you know, even, even with how unprofitable U.S. shale has been, most of the current drillers say that they get back, they will get back into action if it hits that kind of price mark um, as long as they can stay solvent. And, and obviously, you know, is cheap right now. A lot, a lot of them will be okay for at least the short to medium term. But not, I mean, a lot will go bankrupt too. Um, but you have that going on. And then on top of that, you have the basic problem that the, the, real, the real technologies that they need to kind of pivot the economy towards where things are going. So I mean, there's going to be like a revolution in, in you know, energy efficiency by research and development spending from a lot of companies and countries. There's going to be a lot more investment into renewable energy and, and, and trying to essentially restructure the way we, we, we factor in growth estimates out of, out of businesses and, and, and structure businesses. Russia has like a massive lag there. And in its own system of subsidies for energy, for example, hinders its actual ability to, to move towards what that looks like and hinders its ability to build up its own manufacturing base to provide those products and export them. And so I think really the basic problem now is that like the model that's existed really benefited from oil and gas specifically because they're very taxable. But if the, the main resources of the future that are going to be the kind of contested ones are things like cobalt, lithium, nickel, copper, you know, et cetera, like you, you can make money in, in foreign currency earnings, you know, exporting them, but you can't make as much money taxing them. And so I, I think the, the, the post-COVID conundrum for Russia is really that like we are finally reaching a, a secular change in terms of the way people conceive of energy and they're way behind the curve on, on meeting it. So their budget and their macroeconomic philosophy that's kind of accompanied it is going to have to evolve. And there's just no evidence that it's evolving right now. So to make a comparison here, this kind of kind of analogize that fair to say Germany is to fear of debt as Russia is to fear of instability, almost to the point of constricting kind of their policy room for maneuver. Uh, I, I, yes, though I would actually argue that Russia is more Austrian than Germany is when it comes to debt. Um, like there's understandably so going back to the Soviet period and, and the experience of the late eighties under Gorbachev, um, you know, Russian leaders and then one, the ones who kind of who grew up in the Soviet Union, who are now in power, ones who also came just after in the nineties, like they always prioritize paying off their external debts 
over their domestic debts because those are the ones that mattered most to keep the money coming in via you know commodity exports, or, or or in the case of the Soviet Union for grain, in the case of Russia, it was the fact that they had a fixed exchange rate until ninety eight, um, and between ninety four and ninety eight, sorry, and so like that they had to maintain that. Now obviously the ninety eight domestic default in Russia creates a kind of sea change where everybody panics about you know fiscal stability and like not owing people too much. So like the entirety of the last 20 years has been just admitted, like reducing external debt as much as possible and always having cash in hand. So an obsession with running fiscal surpluses. The problem, of course, being that the way that they run the surpluses ends up impoverishing the actual private sector, you know, the average person, because they end up having to take out more debt and so on to sustain spending as opposed to getting help from the government or, or, or else growth generated by public investment. So the irony uh, the irony is actually that the first two two terms that Putin had in his system, he overperformed in some respects because the oil, I mean, oil really saved them. Now, it wasn't really the plan because if you actually look at the way that they wrote the tax code in 2001 for oil, they didn't expect prices to rise the way they did, and they were they actually blew past the parameters of the initial tax code. So they act, so they actually like, I would argue, accidentally got as, as addicted as they are. Um, you know, but like, but the thing is that the the, the combination of stability, like stability, has always come alongside this idea that you, you don't owe foreigners money and you always have a surplus of cash around. And if you look at how economic orthodoxy has evolved in, in developed economies in the last 15 years, you know, especially post-crisis, um, you know, I mean, most developed economies are now comfortable running effectively real negative interest rates, for example, on, on, their, on their debt, um, you know, on massive, massive expansions of, of the money supply because it doesn't actually impact inflation. So the question then becomes, why is inflation so different in Russia than it seems to be in the West? Because they've been very conservative, you know, in terms of things like money, money, um, money supply expansion. And the best I can answer to that question is that inflation in Russia tends to happen from things like, you know, just basic um, imbalances of supply and demand, whether that be from infrastructure, so just not having good roads and rails and airports, you know, having underdeveloped domestic manufacturing sector for consumer goods, um, you know, things like that. And and those are all things that can only be fixed at this point, given how big the state's role is in the economy, either by some like radical new wave of shock therapy, which is not going to happen and would be disastrous for a lot of people, or else by like a new kind of government spending paradigm where they try to actually build new businesses to make new, make new kinds of money, like in a way they hadn't before. So. so essentially the issue, paraphrasing here, is that Russia now, as far as the role of the state in the economy, it's either too statist or not statist enough. Yes, because it, it, the thing is that the only way out of the, the hole they're in, I would argue, was, is a state-led development program. And they have one in theory, but in practice, it's a joke because it, it really it ultimately is more about lobbying interest groups. And, and, it's, and it's gotten wrapped up in geo, geopolitical considerations as opposed to actually being about like a sustainable approach to, let's say, you know, capturing a, a, um, an intermediate stage of a supply chain and, and specializing it the way that like, you know, South Korea did, for example. Um, now they can. I think they have a chance to do that with some Chinese companies, for example. Now, because they, you know, like the West is probably not going to be investing anytime soon. But um, but but Chinese companies still have to believe that their investments are safe in Russia. And obviously, as we both know, the, the business environment is not exactly pristine. So um, so there really is, I think, like a a fundamental a fundamental crisis of growth in a way that, that even if there even if it existed post twenty thirteen. Because the old, you know, growth model exhausts itself, as you've written about and talked about before, um, and you know, others have as well. I think it's actually the next level now. It's like a, it's like a, it's it's a new stage of stagnation. We're we're beyond the kind of stagnation of like 
of like the last seven years and 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 post COVID, it's going to look even worse. So. Well, that's kind of the the paradigm about Russian history. He said very cynically that you know it then it got worse. Uh, yeah. On that positive note, uh, we actually have one more item before we we wrap up for today. Um, but you just launched a new daily news brief called OGs and OFZs. Tell us, give us a quick elevator pitch about the brief, what you're hoping to do with it, and where people can sign up. Yeah. So basically, um, what I noticed was that no one is really talking about the arc of Russian foreign policy or or business and politics really as a result of the energy transition um, and post COVID. I mean, not in like an academic setting, but like in a daily kind of more granular setting in a kind of business political risk-facing setting. So I wanted to start stories that somewhat deal with, with a kind of COVID crisis and then energy transition, and then offer kind of daily analysis on what different aspects of the energy transition and kind of what post-COVID recovery globally looks like, how they impact Russia. So like not just talking about Russia in a bubble, but trying to also situate it within like macroeconomic developments, you know, within like trade imbalances, within, you know, like, like things like that, um, to offer, I think, scope that is unfortunately lacking because frankly, when a lot of Russia specialists understandably really are in the weeds on just Russia itself and don't really step back as much to, to try to you know contextualize it. Very cool. Well, I'm a subscriber. You listeners should be too. Um, we look forward to future editions. Nick, uh, thank you for joining us. This was a great and very illuminating conversation. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you as always for joining and be sure to follow BMV Russia and Ukraine at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. Stay on the lookout for future episodes. We'll see you next time.